I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Although Black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton. And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S. All right, I can't believe it. We are into podcasting. We have multiple episodes now. Yes. So today we are talking with Damon Dickerson, another Detroit architectural designer. Damon is a graduate of the University of Michigan. He has completed two travel studio programs, and he brings all of that experience to his work at Doak's Design Architecture where he is the director of design, and to his work in the city of Detroit uh, as an architectural designer and also a developer. So Damon is actually a native of Ypsilanti, Michigan, and he'll tell you more about that. But he and his family moved to Detroit with the intention of aiding in the city's revitalization he believes in equitable development and that it starts with the community. And he has always leveraged his passion and architectural skill set to seek solutions that stem from the built environment inequities. Uh, that is a passion of Damon's. 
Um, you will hear that, you know, as we talk with him throughout this interview. Uh, one of the other recurring themes in this interview, and as you talk with Damon uh, about his work anytime, is his desire to bring the African and African-American aesthetic into his work. Yes. Uh, he is passionate about designing for Black folks uh, and what our needs are, what our physical needs are within the architectural space and within the buildings and facilities that he designs. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, just talking with Damon about how his family comes together to do things, I, I see why he's really approached architecture as architect as developer. I think that is a um, a spot within African-Americans in architecture that uh, we can explore what's possible for the Black aesthetic or the African-American aesthetic towards projects uh, if we're doing it on our own and owning our own property and that entrepreneur spirit that uh, his family has is kind of showing up in his in his work that way. So I have to say, I really think this uh, young man, because he's a young man, right, <laughs> has a uh, a lot more to give to the profession. He's only getting started. So I'm excited oh, for everybody. Definitely. Right. I'm excited for everybody to hear from him today. So I, I said that he's an architectural designer, but Damon is working towards his licensure to be a licensed architect. And he's had lots of experiences with uh, firms in Michigan and Detroit. And he is now a director of design at Dokes Design Architecture. Yeah, he's he's worked for a couple of other firms as well. He's yeah. worked uh, straight out of grad school at Pinkster Tower Architects, uh, which is on the west side of the state uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He's worked for Crutcher Studio. Ken Crutcher is an mm-hmm. African American architect here in the city of Detroit. Uh, we'll be in, we'll be interviewing him soon. Yeah, so listen <laughs> out for Ken, uh, and he's uh, uh, worked at Rosetti Architects. Uh, you know, uh, which is a uh, actually one of the older firms here. So it's a legacy generational architectural firm mm-hmm. um, that uh, now specializes in kind of sport design and entertainment. But Damon worked on a number of projects uh, uh, while at Rosetti Associates. So he has quite the resume. Uh, I really like the work that he did uh, at Barber Fair. Like if we're talking about the African aesthetic, that the interior of that African restaurant kind of starts to explore what he's talking about in, yes, in this episode definitely uh, of how to bring ourselves into our work. So um, you can check out the show notes for some other projects we'll put up there, but right. it's, uh, I think you'll be very interested by his body of work. Definitely. So Damon Dickerson. Again, welcome, Damon Dickerson. Thank you. Good to have you on our podcast today, um, our interview today. Absolutely. I have known you since you were in college. Yep. That's where we first met. Yep. You were attending University of Michigan and president of the National Organization of Minority Architectural Students organization there, correct? That's a slight correction. So okay. I was um, public relations 
Oh, how about you? Okay, I thought you were president. No, I, no, I, I did not want to run for president. Thought that there were a couple other people uh, much more qualified and uh, to to be president of Lomas at that time. So uh, me and Alanda, um, uh, mm. a good friend of mine, you know, yeah. may she rest in power. Yes. Uh, uh, but her and I were were head of public relations. Okay. And your wife Ashley. Was also was she at U of M at the same time? Yeah, she was at the same time. So okay. we shared undergrad together. First off, she wasn't. I wasn't even thinking about her to be my wife. I should just say that she was a, a good friend. Turned out to be a really good friend. We had mutual friends. A small cast of black academics or designers uh, at, at school at that time. We were all part of the same cohort. Uh, she had her own boyfriend. I had my own girlfriend. It was that kind of thing. And then uh, she, we graduated, to get, we graduated together. She, I kept going to get my master's. And then she, uh, she took a break and started uh, working. And uh, you know, then I graduated from grad school. And by the time I graduated from grad school, one thing led to another after a couple of us linking up together. Um, we started looking at each other a little different. <laughs> and uh, we fast forward from that time. And we've uh, been married. And now we have two, two beautiful girls. Yes. Wow, nice. So, Damon, a little bit about your background. I didn't know if you were originally from Detroit, uh, originally from Michigan. What's your your whole Michigan story? And you choosing uh, University of Michigan as your your grad your school of choice. Yeah, so so yeah, I, I consider Detroit is absolutely my hometown, uh, especially just because it's where I reside. But really, I'm, I'm I say I'm from Detroit by way of Cincinnati. Both set of my grandparents migrated here. Um, you know, we're talking about you know the 40s essentially, if not before, and they both land, both sets landed in Detroit. So what it, my my maternal grandparents settled on the west side, and then my uh, my paternal grandparents settled on the east side. So to this very day, I, most of my cousins, my aunties, all my family essentially is in Detroit, west side, east side. So I spent summers, holidays, all kinds of time being here. But my parents uh, moved away or out to the Islamic area, also working with the big three at the time. So that's where I spent most of my formative years. Uh, so essentially going back and forth. So uh, fast forward some, you know, not only do I have familiar ties here, so extremely familiar with the city of Detroit, and you know, it's always been my, my home. When I started my academic career at U of M, I spent a lot of time in Detroit uh, in, in various studios. So I've had the opportunity to see it uh, on a couple of different scales. One as um, essentially as a, as a resident or you know, guest of my, my family members, I, I would say in many ways, and then also as a, more or less an academic. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to um, to teach and mentor high school students with Professor Craig Wilkins. That means I'm employed now in the city of Detroit. So I've had I've had various ways to stay connected with the city throughout my life. As you were studying, looking at it from the academic side, um, what drew you to Detroit to make you want to stay? Was it something architectural related or was it just, and I shouldn't say just, was it proximity to family? I'll just say it's cultural. Really, when, when my wife and I said we're going to put down roots for our generation or our next uh, our descendants, our children, effectively, we had to decide where that was going to start. So 
you know, we pulled out the map and laid it out and looked around ultimately the world. And uh, at the time, from a work standpoint, Michigan was definitely it. So we had to make a decision on Michigan for sure. And once we made a decision on Michigan, it was effectively a no-brainer, especially from a cultural standpoint, in the sense of being able to, to be around our people, uh, be around a fast-moving, growing, hungry city, you know, that's just eager to, to thrive in so many ways. And looking at our skill sets and recognizing relatively quickly, you know, different ways that we felt that we could uh, contribute to that to that growth. Culture seems to be very important to you. And I can um, tell that, you know, in conversations that we have, how does culture tie into the work that you do? And I'm going to marry that with another question about your purpose. Does culture, architecture, and your development work, does that all tie into, have you found your purpose? Does that all tie together? Yes, it's really to work to work on, to design, to develop projects that, that promote, I would say, black generational wealth and prosperity. Mm-hmm. I would say that mm-hmm. um, it's necessary, it's needed. Uh, we don't have to deal in st- statistics to uh, uncover why that is extremely important. Um, I can do that work on a micro level, a regional level, a national or international level. Mm-hmm. Um, there's issues to be solved. and. My, my skill set, my tools, you know, my God-given gifts, I would say, is to to develop and, and be an architect. So it's time to put it to the test. Okay. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit? I know the listeners don't know a lot about your your background and and development uh, within the city of Detroit. Why don't you tell us uh, your story about you being a developer and that relating to your passion for economic development? So really, the seed—I I would say—the seed was planted in undergrad. I, I became disillusioned extremely early in my academic career. It was in undergrad. It was, it was the lack of black representation in school. Design theory was either Asian or European. Um, there's a dearth of professors affirming my ideas that I had at the time around activism. I observed a gulf, you know, essentially a large gap between architectural theory and practice. While I was researching a particular studio project, um, and I forget what, what the project was now, but it was, it was definitely an undergrad. I ran into these guys on the West Coast, uh, white guys. Um, I think it was Jonathan Siegel and um, Lorraine Russell uh, and a couple other guys. But they were essentially architect developers. That's what they coined their name as. And they were in San Diego at the time. And when I saw that, you know, I read a little bit, but again, it was part of a studio research. They were the architect development board, but it's just part of my, my search. And that's sort of where the seed started. It was watering at that time, you know, watering that seed. So I took a trip. I took a trip to San Diego. I was looking for these guys, trying to make some contact. I felt like I could just walk into an office at that time and just say, Hey, what up? You know, <laughs> uh, I'm from Michigan. I'm still in school. I'm just trying, I'm just out here, you know, to see. You know, what's, what's happening? You know, my brother lived in Los Angeles, so I stopped there first. Him and I kicked it. He agreed to drive me down to San Diego. It was that kind of thing. So I, I got a chance to meet two of the guys, which was cool. 
you know, chopped it up with them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Nice. So it's really cool to hear their, you know, their perspective on it. You know, they, and I should say, I should just call them guys, right? I think Jonathan C. was probably old enough to be my father. And the other guy is also old enough to be probably my grandfather. So mm-hmm. I shouldn't, you know, come across as if they're just, you know, my peers. They, they've been at it for quite some time. From there, you know, things started to take off in my own mind, and I started connecting that back with becoming disillusioned with the school and just saying, okay, I know I should be here as a burgeoning designer and an architect, but now I'm unclear on how I actually use my, 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 my skill set or how I will use my skill set. Um, and, and I, you know, fast forward just a bit, I would say, you know, architect developer effectively was born at that point, right? Still in extreme infancy, uh, not as if I've grown that much, but uh, but it was tough to pivot at that time. So now, now I'm up against these these really strong ideas and also being at a school and within a profession uh, that made it really hard to go, okay, I'm just going to start developing now. Uh, so I'm still in school, I'm extremely green and naive. Um, and then I would say grad school, post-grad, you know, I looked at side opportunities now, you know, ways to say, okay, I'm going to work at an office because that's what they say you're supposed to do. You see your IEP credits in order to get ready for testing and all that stuff. Uh, but at the same time, I'm just going to start looking at real estate saying, okay, you know, who wants to throw some money my way and I'll put a little bit in and let's try to make it happen. So between that not panning out and then the rigors of the profession, you know, again, keeping a job during a recession, this is back in, you know, 08 to 12, somewhere in there, keeping a job, you know, trying to pay for electricity and stuff like that during the time, and car payment and all that, and IDP. You know, I, I couldn't see how I can say, I can just start, I can just become a developer. So now on this side of my career, I say, um, working to embed myself, really, with a cast of really wonderfully talented brothers and sisters that uh, specifically are here in the city of Detroit, uh, with similar interests and just try to stay as much as I can uh, adjacent to the development and the things that are happening here. And I've had an opportunity now to really kick it with those great people and, and put together partnerships that are really at, at early stages, but they offer an extreme and immense amount of opportunities to do something really good. That's Would really a, yeah, that? amazing uh, story. Would you say your first development project, if you could call it a development project, your first rehab was the house that you and Ashley bought? Oh, yeah, that's a good Yeah, yeah. So I would call it my first one. We had an opportunity to uh, purchase a two-family. We call it the Jumanji house when we first saw it. So meaning it was going back to the earth. <laughs> it was taken over by habitat and you know like literally fingers of plants reaching up and grabbing it and pulling it down to the ground mm-hmm. so we, we saw it you know without going into too much because uh, it's a lot of fun stories that came out of that experience but we saw it we saw a, a wonderful opportunity uh, other people affirmed that opportunity and we redesigned, redesigned, renovated, and the rest is history. Pictures I've seen are beautiful. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, we yes. appreciate that. That was, that was a, a big undertaking. It was huge. For your, huge. For your first it one, huge. Yeah, but great. very successful. So Thank that's you. great. Thank you. About 18 months. 18 wow. months. Wow. Years of moving from the point where we wanted at the auction mm-hmm. to 
the time that we had substantial completion, it was probably about uh, almost two years. So it was a, it was quite a ride. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. I mean, that takes a lot of passion and a lot of, uh, you know, it's entrepreneurial in a way, right? You, you're really stepping out, you, you know, you really took that seed that was planted in you a long time ago and it was just growing and you were just, you were just doing it. It was just, uh, I, like I said, I've learned so much now about your roots. I see why your tree is the way it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, I, I find myself in, in many scenarios just really trying to, uh, you know, keep doing the work. You know, um, it's really hard for me not to. So I try to stay active. I try to stay busy. I remember it was this old guy when I lived in uh, Kalamazoo. And, um, and at that time, I just graduated, so this is really my first job out of school, my first you know, true office experience outside of being an intern. And it was a, it was an older brother, and he wasn't connected to architecture at all, just someone that I, I, I knew. He just said, look, man, you, you just got to stay hustling. You know, you always, I see it in you. You can hustle. You don't have to worry about how good you are. You don't have to worry about how horrible you are. But if no one can ever take, you know, your hustle away from you. That's one thing that they can't take. You can hustle no matter what. You know, you come out with with something that you need and something that you want. You know, so I, you know, and then I at the time I was, a, you know, I was a basketball fan. So I'm thinking about, you know, how that, you know, mm-hmm. also transferred over to the Pistons, for example. You know, being a scrappy team. You know, the yeah, hustle, yeah. the work hard. You know what I mean? So all that put together, I said, you know what? I got to keep that hustle fire and you know just try to keep doing the work and you know, hopefully it's it's good work. Well, you that's you a have great way to look at it, yeah. right? And, and, and in architecture, that's what we have to do. You know, moving from job to job, you aren't always guaranteed that. You know, especially as a black professional in architecture, you know, sometimes it comes down to last hired, first fired, and and you got to move on to the next either office job or make your own. But I, I get what you were saying about the connection between your struggle and, and the university setting, because that's what you're not getting. Well, I didn't. I know when I was coming through school, I didn't get, you know, that feel from from the education. And I didn't feel like I was being, you know, uh, set up to be an entrepreneur. I felt like it was like, you know, you're designing, you're going to design for working for another firm. It was just almost like it was a unstated pathway that I was supposed to be on while in school. It didn't give me the broadness that I that I needed as far as profession, but it seemed like you had that fire before you came out. Uh, I don't know if that's the same thing you kind of talked about when you were experiencing when you were going through school. Yeah, I mean, so that fire, uh, I, I have to give that fire up to my family before architecture. Thankfully, I had a little life experience before U of L. Um, I actually started my academic career at Washington Community College, just trying to earn enough credits to, to transfer over to the architecture program. So when I came into the program, you know, I was next to people that had already been in, in the, the School of Architecture for two years prior, because um, I just walked in with the community college um, credits, essentially. So if it wasn't really for my family, my family, I'm talking about my family as a whole, aunties and uncles and, you know, just the kinds of people they are. My grandparents were definitely, you know, coming up from South Carolina, owning 10 and a half acres of land, you know, uh, fighting that fight 
and that being instilled in me since I was uh, I could ever remember, I can't just tell you frankly that I would have survived the academic environment, let alone now trying to navigate the profession. You're mentioning your grandparents, and I, I'm thinking back to a couple conversations we've had that you worked on their farm. Yeah, in, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Ypsilanti area. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, okay. they had 10 and a half acres. It was actually south of Ipsy, way out in the country, dirt roads, you know, just can't see the head in front of your face, kind of nighttime, mm. mosquitoes, biggest baby shoes, kind of thing, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had really fine years growing up, spending summers out in the country, uh, working on the farm, you know, my grandmother, my grandparents, you know, they were people of their time. Older people of that generation, so my grandfather didn't talk as much, but he worked like his mm-hmm. like his grown out style, you know. Grandmother extremely warm, she, you know, she smelled like a grandmother and fed you like a grandmother, <laughs> you know, all all those wonderful things you know about grandma, you know what I mean? But that both of them in their own right had had a, a hustler spirit, and that's passed down to my cousins and my older cousins and my uncles and my aunties, and that was just passed on to me. Evolution. Well, you mentioned a couple, um, you mentioned about your early architecture career. What were some of the architecture firms that you worked for uh, in Detroit? And, you know, you mentioned Kalamazoo as well. Oh, uh, so I worked for Tower Pinkster, uh, that's an Andy firm in uh, West Michigan, Kalamazoo. I worked for, um, I spent a little time with uh, Rainey at um, Hamilton Anderson. That was an externship, but um, you know, I, I was able to really capture a lot of you know, really good relationships out of that. I worked for um, Dynamic Designs. It was uh, it is a FEC, so a Family Entertainment uh, Center architectural firm mm-hmm. in Birmingham, and I worked for Rosetti Architects as, as well, uh, downtown Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, high end sports and entertainment and hospitality. So and then various other smaller, I would say opportunities, especially through the recession. So I moved back and forth through entrepreneurship, just trying to stay afloat at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of contractual arrangements that, I, that I've, I've done for various clients and outfits. So yeah, it's been it's been quite the interesting journey. Um, I felt like I needed to be in a firm for a long period of time and really stick and stay. And every time I tried to do that, that idea failed me in one way or another. So I, I didn't get the opportunity, like many, I think, to stay with a firm for, you know, over, I would just say over five, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all those firm, all those opportunities were in three, out, three years or so, and that was pretty much it. So um, I felt like I've had to sort of scrape together different opportunities and experiences to, to be where I am now. Yeah. You and I are alike in in that way. Okay. I don't think right. I spent more than two, three years at one firm. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if I tried. Did I want to? Um, the entrepreneurial spirit was kept calling me. So maybe you know, when when uh, I had to leave a firm, I would pursue my entrepreneurial um, desires. <laughs> So, but I understand that that hustler spirit, that hustle spirit in you, you know, kept you going in architecture. Yeah, well, you and Damon have a lot in common. Your 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 families uh, having that yeah. ent- entrepreneurial spirit entrepreneurial and the uh, spirit. Yeah, yeah. So y'all y'all got it in your upbringing. So that's <laughs> a little bit different. So right, right.
All right. And then for our Detroit City of Design Spotlight, today we have the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. The Charles H. Wright Museum is a 125,000 square foot museum for African American history that opened in 1997 in Detroit's Midtown neighborhood near the Cultural Center in Midtown, Detroit. It billed itself as the largest instituted dedicated to African-American experience when it opened in 97. Since then, you had the National African-American Museum that opened up on the National Mall in D.C., so knocked uh, Charles H. Wright <laughs> down, but it was, the, it was the largest. And it is the home of over 35,000 artifacts and archive materials, including um, documents from the Detroit labor movement. The museum is named after Dr. Charles Wright. He was an obstetrician and gynecologist who was the visionary behind uh, the Museum of Black History in Detroit. He actually had started uh, the museum in 1978, and it was literally in a house uh, mm -hmm. that he did the original museum. He was just like, it just became a vision for him and a passion for him to start this museum. So there were three locations for this museum over time. Um, the house that it was in, it was the first building that was designed by uh, Sims and Varner, which is directly behind the current, more Afrocentric version of the museum um, that's in Midtown now, the final location. But just to um, have this story of African-American history come out of Detroit and we're one of the largest ones, we definitely thought it was worthy of the spotlight today. The current museum is actually city-owned, owned by the city of Detroit, and that is a testament to the city. Detroit is 79%, 80% African-American, so it is definitely um, important that the city help tell the story of the heritage of the people that live in the city of Detroit. And I will say, you know, I'm going to take a break from the architecture piece for just a second okay. uh, and talk about one of the exhibits. Whenever you and the audience get an opportunity to come to the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit, see the And Still We Rise exhibit. It is one of the most yeah. outstanding exhibits about the African-American experience yes. um, that I have seen. As Sandra mentioned, this was the largest African-American museum until the National Museum now at the Smithsonian. Um, and that exhibit is outstanding. I've not made it through all of it yet. But um, the one, the Still We Rise in Detroit is fantastic. But the current Charles H. Wright Museum, designed by Sims Varner, uh, one of our trailblazing architecture firms here in Detroit. Yes. Uh, Howard Sims and Harold Varner. Architect Harold Varner took several trips to the African continent, studied African culture, and you can see that as evident in the museum here. The rotunda that you enter once you come into the space um, the stories that are told just within the entry of the space with the terrazzo mural on the floor done by, by Hubert Massey. The stories that are told once you enter the museum and you 
meet with the storytellers and you can hear the echoes. It gives you a sense of African culture and how stories are told and how how stories are relayed. Yeah, by 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 verbal, pretty much like this podcast, yes. right? The griot that are the, the storytellers. Thank you. Yeah, yes, yeah, storytellers yes. too to our history. So. Right, right. And then moving through the, the various exhibits and seeing the carvings in the doors and in the the details inside of the museum and uh, the masks as you enter at the front of the building. Like I said, it's a great tribute to uh, Afrocentric architecture. It explores a lot of the elements and the use of stone in the main body of the building and, you know, the construction of how everything's put together. But like you said, that rotunda is where your experience begins. It's like you, you it's the center of, of where a lot of exhibits start off and um, mm-hmm. the, the people who tour you through the museum start off there, like you said, with their storytelling, then take you into the steel rise. You feel like you're stepping into an African experience. I have to say, the Sims environment was very successful mm-hmm. in, in conveying that with this this uh, third location. The spirit of Dr. Wright's passion and putting together all this information. And literally, they have these different locations because they outgrew the other locations, right? They started in the house and the archives and everything they had outgrew that. When they went to the second location on Frederick, and that was 28,000 square feet. Then they outgrew that space. And then they came up to this 125,000 square foot mm-hmm. uh, building. And the progression towards the architecture, the progression towards the body of archives and history that we have there, it's just definitely something to be celebrated in the city of Detroit. So I have a different experience every time I go. I've been exactly. there for a gala in the middle of the rotunda, and it's just turned into a totally different space at night when it's uh, when you have a, a lit charity event there and then when you go in the daytime and have the sunlight come through that rotunda it's totally different every time right so definitely put that on your to-do list when you come to Detroit it is definitely worthy of our spotlight and you will hear more about our trailblazer architects uh, in later episodes you can find information on our website at noirdesignpartee.com about uh, Sims and Ronald as well Hey there, architecture enthusiast, Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender.
and back to Damon Dickerson. Out of the the work that you have done, uh, let's let's start with like your earlier work and into into you know what you're doing currently now. So, what are some highlight projects that you would like everybody to know to kind of just make it up your career uh, with architecture just in general and as well as architect as developer? There's a couple of projects. So I'm super excited about 7400 West Pacific. Um, mm-hmm. I've been a part of that project with uh, the development team. And that development team has changed and morphed, you know, to a certain degree. But I've been with them probably almost three years, believe it or not, at the inception of that project. And to see that it is three quarters of the way through construction at this point is super fascinating. Uh, this 8,000 square foot commercial space, restaurant, brewery, it will be home to, I think, the first black brewer in the in the state of Michigan. He runs a, a brewery in Ypsilanti, uh, my own hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's a super cool project that's coming over out here in the summer. I'm also a part of, with, with my partner, um, it's called, we call it, affectionately we call it the Deco Building because there's architectural uh, features that, that give a nod to uh, Art Deco, the architectural style, and that project is uh, at 16703 East Aurora Avenue. It's about 8,000 square feet, two stories. Um, it's mixed use, so it's residential on the top, uh, commercial on the bottom, uh, side lot, which provides opportunities for activation, mm-hmm. uh, community activation. Uh, I'm super excited about that. So those two projects, I would say, uh, one is as architect developer, the other is just, you know, leading that project within uh, Dose Design, my current home, my business partner, Kim. So we've, we've had that project uh, pretty much for the last, I would say, couple of years now after I, I, I moved from the old firm I was with to, to where I am now. So I would say those two projects right now are, I would say, highlights of what I'm working on at this present time. You and a couple of other Black architects are really instrumental in revitalizing that section of West McNichols. You you and the developers, you know, um, just that two block stretch is going to be an outstanding entertainment, restaurant, gathering space for people in that neighborhood. And people from outside the neighborhood, I, I look forward to hanging out there. Me too, me too. I mean, I, I got to give a mad shout out to George Minami and uh, his team with Rod Hardiman and the project that they're working on directly across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think, just understanding somewhat of how, how that story came together and to see, you know, what is about to happen on that site. And to your point, what's about to happen to the corner, I think is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's transformational. It's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking. I'm looking forward to just parking my car somewhere and just walking, you know, as far as I could possibly walk down that stretch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that ties together again, culture yep. and architecture, yep. and then with your other project, culture, architecture, and development. Absolutely, right. absolutely. It was a it was a great discussion that we had was it back in the fall with the uh, panel with the architects and developers and even everybody who was online listening to that mm-hmm. panel with an all black development effort and with all black architects assisting in this in this vision moving forward and to me it definitely uh, shows the mark of uh, 
something that doesn't that hasn't happened along a lot of other corridors within in Detroit. We've had a a lot of things going on uh, right down the street at at Livernois uh, Avenue of Fashion, but this this has a different feel to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Just uh, just because of the developers that are willing to go to the neighborhoods and and make things happen. So. Yeah, excited for you to that. Uh, I see why that's a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I have a question too about one of the things that kind of led us uh, at Noir Design Party to kind of start to analyze this and look at this was, you know, the fact that Detroit is a UNESCO city of design, right? That, you know, I, I was actually part of the advisory committee when they were putting together that application and they talked about legacy of everything that comes out of, you know, Michigan, Detroit, the Cranbrook and Saarinen eras. And, you know, we have the deep Albert Kahn legacy, but it seems like our story as black architects, designers was missing from that story. And then this, this spot on Livernois seems like it could be the catalyst to kind of bring together our history that is unknown with the present that is happening now. So mm-hmm. I, do you have any thoughts about how we as uh, uh, architects of color can continue to uh, show our legacy and show our our, our future uh, as important works of designers uh, in the city and in the state. Yeah, just, I think a lot of it is just, it's just getting out in front of it, Sanjay, and getting out in front of history. Looking back and saying, okay, do we agree that the work that we have done has moved the needle? for ourselves and really take a critical look at that. And to me, you know, our ancestors are there as guides. Our ancestors are there as um, precedent studies and a metric for us to measure what they've done with respect to where we are. And if that answer is no, it hasn't moved the needle. Or if that answer is yes, we need to take that back and say, okay, thank you for that. This is what we need to do to push us forward the way we need to move forward. It, it makes me think about what we're what we're collecting, the information and the projects that these architects have done and make them available as a precedent and, and, and a point of analysis and a point of discussion and, and moving things forward mm-hmm. is very profound. I think that, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like some of the things are, yes, we weren't given the same opportunities or has the same, you know, same larger projects across the city and across the region like others. But the work that is out there, I definitely, I think it's worth studying. It's worth uh, learning as a springboard. And I like that, just using it as a precedent, making it available. I don't think it's available to everybody to know the body of work that some of the architects have done. I've always respected both you and Karen's work. Uh, in bringing that to the forefront. And, and I have, you know, I'd be missed if I didn't say that. Uh, and I'll also say that I actually need to get better at studying the pool of, of information that you all have already pulled together. Taking my head, you know, my blindness off for a minute and going, okay, you know, this is a pool of really awesome work that can provide a ton of information that can assist me along my, my own journey. Whether it's an aesthetic journey, a functional journey, a political journey, an economic journey, which is within the, the sort of the lens of architecture, um, you all are, are making that 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 work available, um, and that's that's extremely meaningful. Thank you. Absolutely. And there, it's a strong body of work that rivals just about anybody out there, mm-hmm. but it's just not 
uh, given the recognition that it has deserved, and that is the that's the mission of this project, you know, and to highlight people like you who continue to do work in the city. If we get to the point like you're talking, then your work will already be out there as a precedent. We we should right. be moving the we should be moving the needle in notoriety already just from our conversation here and in work and the conversations we've had in the past. So uh, well, I, I like because absolutely because we, we should not do we sh- we shouldn't be doing the same thing. In my mind, it's just no way. And a lot of times we get trapped in that that cycle of doing the same thing. And it's some of it is our own doing. Some of it is our own internal or spiritual um, cosmic sort of wake up for, for the better or the worse. And then some of, and then most of it is the environment that we're in to revolve around the, the same actions, mm-hmm. thinking that we're actually working in many ways for our benefit, but really we're just sort of spinning our tires in the snow uh, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we can take a more of a critical look and say, we're going to spend 15 minutes looking at some of our ancestors and then get off of that. That was cool. And then start plotting the course to, to move on and be, be better, do something different, mm-hmm. uh, take what we need that, that really did work and then do some work and then go back and then review more of what they did mm-hmm. against our new work. And right. then it should be back and forth. Okay. So like a okay. colorful way of looking at things uh, when I think about the West African bird that leads backwards effectively. Mm-hmm. She's sort of saying that I'm going to take the, the best of, of my history as I continue to fly forward. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. I like that. I like that a lot. It's it's always like it's easier to look back, right? And and we can use that as a you know analyze that. But if, if we were to look at what's happening right now within Detroit's architectural world, or in in, in Michigan uh, and beyond, but what you see that is happening to architects of color, what do you think we should be saying to help out our future generations now? Like whatever words of wisdom we should be giving people who are in architecture school now or thinking about becoming an architect can we can we help them you know catapult some kind of way about what we're learning or what you've learned first i'll, I'll say for, for me i don't use architect of color so I, i'll be extremely specific and say those that are serious like for real classify themselves as being black okay mm-hmm. african-american black whatever you want to call it you know indigenous indigenous in the sense that black people were on this land before this was a country. So therefore, there, we have an indigenous status as well, too. And I'm not necessarily talking about what we consider a Native American. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about black, where you have roots in Africa, you're melanated, your hair is kinky, that black. So, and I use that level of specificity because quickly we're co-opted into being a person of color, uh, which is the same as calling me a colored person, really and truly, you know, but because all of these smart academics have <laughs> just sort of flipped, and mm-hmm. I, I, you know, now we've accepted that. And there's no knock on anybody that uses it. So I'm just, I'm just laying the groundwork for who I'm talking about. I all say. right. Let's say, let's say preach. Go ahead. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, so I'm, just, I'm just being super specific because I'm not talking to anyone else. We have a very, very specific history that is extremely unique on this planet. And, I'm, and I'm, when I say unique on this planet, I'm talking about, um, you know, for, for a thousand years, we've, and that's a literal number, we've been fighting a very similar war. So if you look at it that way, right? Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, we look at it. So past, present, history, Afrofuturistic, you know, this is what we're dealing with. So I say my ancestors and those that came before me, the older generation, I think many of them did the best that they could, I think, right? They faced similar challenges to, you know, what we're, what we're dealing with now, um, and specifically around how to practice architecture. And I say how because of framework that society has already created, they had to practice within it. So they had to study the, the way that they said study. They had mm-hmm. to draw the way they said draw. They had to detail the way they said detail. These are how joints come together within this construct. These are the kind of materials that are used within this construct. Even though they could be counterintuitive and completely against your, your cosmic makeup as a black person, that's what you had to do. So most I've come across could only provide, and these are older folks, could only provide sort of the, you know, keep on keeping on advice. You know, and that's not to downplay or be funny about mm-hmm. that, but that is a historic black or marginalized person's sentiment is to keep on keeping on, right? And to survive. To survive. To survive. survive. As, a part, as opposed to mm-hmm. thriving and coming up with new inventions that mm-hmm. will allow you to thrive into generations to come. So that's what we've had to do. Mm-hmm. So a select few people in my life personally have provided seeds and affirmations, I would say, the opportunities to get me to my thought process now, my thoughtscape, you know, the way of thinking and moving in the world. And it, it took work, I would say, on my part to ask, you know, the right questions, to try to get in front of the right people, to prove myself in so many ways. And most importantly, you know, those that actually heard and saw me were, were able to, to, to boost me up uh, to, to do some of the things that I'm doing now. For that, I'm deeply thankful. And frankly, I have a lot of work to do. So I would say, you know, as a, as a, as a, I guess the words of advice or wisdom for that next generation, I, de- I define wisdom as a sort of a, a interwoven or interweave of intellect, experience, and opportunity. So all three of those things come together in order for you to, you know, create this thing that you call wisdom. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's not in a vacuum. And that, that's exactly why it's, it's, it's wisdom. So there's got to be, you know, some group thought to help you get to that point. So I would say to younger people, you know, don't just be an architect when you so-called grow up. You know, I, I want to be an architect. Okay, cool. You know, I think the better question or the better thing to say is ask yourselves, what problems do you want to solve? How do I solve them? Use precedent studies to see how some of these similar problems were solved. Create a metric out of that study. And then ask yourself, did your precedent solve them? Because as much as we boost up our ancestors, and I mentioned this before, love them dearly, at the same time, they did things wrong, frankly, right? And it was all within the context. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But if we can't say that to each other, then we continue to, to make similar mistakes, no matter how much we love them, revered them, respected them, etc. To keep making the same mistakes is essentially, you know, going backwards or nowhere at the same time, right? And if that answer is no, if that metric is, ma- is measured and that answer is no, I think that is at that very moment when we need to work through new approaches effectively and build upon ones that, you know, you know, that may have gotten close to solving the issues that we're doing. And then boom, you know, this is the architect I must be. 
Because that now, after that work, you can say that this is the kind of architect that I must be in order to solve those problems based on this body of work or research or precedent that I have put together. And I was critical, and people got mad at me because I said things that they didn't like about people that they loved, but at the same time, this is the truth. This is what we need to do to solve our issues to thrive. I was, I was over here like, that's it was dead on <laughs> what you just said. I mean... It actually almost uh, relates back to the conversation we were having about entrepreneurship that, uh, you know, that that hustle It's the same thing. Right. You you're you're problem solving. You're looking at, you know, where you're trying to be from a economical standpoint and how do you move to that that point and that reference and that in that needle that you're setting. I think it's great what you talked about, you know, uh, looking at. Black architects work as a as a body of work as a precedent, and I think that's the one thing we've been missing within the profession of architecture that could really help a lot of other future mm-hmm. future Black architects to be able to have as a frame of reference to you know then move on to something that's close to their their walk their way of of living and upbringing. Uh, so you you've hit a lot of great points that I, I think that. It definitely makes uh, sense. And we're just starting to have these conversations from a historical standpoint, as well as an architectural standpoint. And I, I think that Detroit is a great model to look at to do that from as well. So I, I'm over here shaking and nodding my head. I'm sorry about everybody else. <laughs> I'm shaking and nodding my head too. So. Right. <laughs> and I was, we were going to ask you if you bring your spirituality to the table in your designs. And I, I think you've already answered that. But if you want to expand or expound on that, you know, yeah, uh, you and yeah. I had the conversation recently about um, how you named your children mm-hmm. and uh, the process that you and your wife went through uh, in developing your spiritual name. Absolutely. Um, Kai Amaru. Yep, Kashi Amaru. All right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, and I'll, talk I'll, a little I'll about from, that. I guess I'll speak from Kashi Amaru's standpoint. It really is is, is Kai uh, Lahun Shakshi Amaru. Mm-hmm. So all together means crown transformer of foreign structure for his people. And when I think of overall, you know, your question about spirituality, I, I've been on a spiritual journey. You know, I have to say that John Coltrane is actually one of my favorite jazz artists. I've listened to uh, Love Supreme countless times. That's one of my favorites, um, too. And it's just, <laughs> it still moves me to this very day. You know, each one of uh, the pieces that, you know, out of all four, mm-hmm. I mean, all of them, I think, are my favorites because they can't stand alone by right. themselves, or they shouldn't. So, you know, I have a, a understanding that spirit and energy, it is everything. So when I think about it, I think about it from a universal standpoint. And when I say that, I mean us, the table, the sun, the moon, the stars, mm-hmm. and all. It's all part of this. And it's all created and moved by the same force, ultimately. You know, so with that, the energy that I'm speaking of has created a certain balance and truth that must be upheld by, by all beings. And some of those truths are very simple, right? Photosynthesis is a truth. Uh, reproduction, in terms of how we all got here, <laughs> is a truth. Fire needs oxygen. There's a such thing as gravity, you know, et cetera. So if that is the case, then I am the universe. Right? I'm, 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 if I'm particles of that, I am then the universe in that sense. 
So as in my melanated body, my hair uh, is all part of that creation, which means you know my work effectively must reflect that this balance. Of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. despite the forces that are here to disrupt it, I must be it because there are effectively you know uh, forces that are here to, to disrupt. Uh, so the real question to me, you know, in my mind is how do I manifest uh, my spirituality? And it's tough, but how do I manifest my spirituality through architecture yeah. and development? And it's really tough, to be frank. You know, when operating in a system that is severely imbalanced, you know, it's a lot tougher than I thought. Mm -hmm. So every single day, I feel like I'm reprogramming myself, but I need to work at the same time. Right. <laughs> right. So it's like right. very real things that are all happening because it's like, yo, you still got work, but you got I have to reprogram myself in terms of how I approach architecture, in terms of uh, overall design theory, etc. Right. So I, I've I've come to the conclusion, so to speak, the conclusion of the next story, or the conclusion prior to the next story, that I have to I have to create these intentional incremental approaches to my work. Mm -hmm. What I mean mm -hmm. by that is, you know, I have a renewed focus on sunlight, right? Melanated people mm -hmm. need tons of sunlight, right? So how do I start incorporating just that simple thing with some of our projects? Mm -hmm. Without compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, working on, you know, looking at African or Afro-centered design opportunities. So, you know, there's a book called Put Up by Dr. Laela Africa. It's a book on African practices of organizing gardens. Okay, and those the way you organize gardens is, is um, that that idea is transferred into how you organize a village and how you organize homes. Uh, David Ajay's work, I'm becoming more acquainted with his work and how he brings you know African centered architecture into his into this context, you know, into this framework. Uh, becoming better acquainted with the work of uh, Baba Maliki Kuni at Detail Town Farms, just understanding that food is everything. He's also a guitarist. It's polyrhythmic in a sense, and just talking about how that polyrhythm can begin to play itself into the work that I do. There was the design collective back in the day, you know, mm -hmm. Mr. English, I think Miss Harris, uh, Emmett Hager was part of that, Percy mm -hmm. Cash, who we just mentioned, I think was a part of that collective, right? Uh, Jack Travis, Sharon Sutton. I should say, and really, and really revisiting the work of two professors that have had a profound impact on my life, uh, Dr. Craig Wilkins and uh, Dr. James Chaffers. And at this point, you know, essentially asking myself, what do we need to thrive in working for, you know, working on design to, to do that, to, mm -hmm. to work on something that allows us to thrive. So diving deeper into Afrofuturism Afro and defining it through, through the lens, you know, effectively that I've been given. You're a young architect, so you have... I was told an uh, architect is young at 50, so I'm, <laughs> I'm a baby. You're not a baby architect. <laughs> you, the, what just came out of your mouth could not come out of a baby architect. Hey, these kids now are wise, you <laughs> know? Hey, hey, <laughs> no, uh, yes. This is my mother talking about. You know, my mother, <laughs> no, my mother uh, you know, Early stage, man, she put all kinds of stuff in, in my in my way, you know, mm -hmm. to to pick up and grasp for artistic standpoint. So, you know, to books, from photography, to stencils and color pencils, mm -hmm. you know, that stuff would move my mind. You know, and I really put that stuff in front of me. So, you know, she she used to give me newspaper home like I had homework where if you I had to take a newspaper clipping and read it if it has something to do with some kind of local 
artist to so many people. I'm mm-hmm. the number one. But she told me, look, you need to read this because if you never read some of these people at the grocery store, you you to be able to talk to them. That's cool. That, I would say that's my mom. Okay. But as a younger architect, I would say, uh, you have many years ahead of you to shape the profession and to help guide those who are coming uh, behind you, the people that you will be working with, the people that you will mentor, um, the people that will look up to you. You know, incorporating sunlight because African people need more sunlight. It's true. Uh, it's true. It's true. And we don't take that into consideration when we design buildings. You could write a whole textbook on that, right? Designing for African people. Absolutely. In Detroit. In Detroit. <laughs> In Detroit, we got to figure that one out. <laughs> Yeah, I look forward to seeing uh, how you incorporate some of these things into your designs and how people will experience them, because I know it will be a great experience. So, wow. <laughs> that was deep. That was <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to that a few times. We got a whole lot of information out of that. Good. One question. Because, <laughs> you know, some people ask, you know, what's your favorite building? What got you into architecture? You know, I, I get those questions just, you know, casual. I, I think there's nothing wrong with those questions, but because it, it really pushes me to think about, well, what is this thing all for? Mm-hmm. You know, really and truly, I can't just name any buildings that I like. And that's not mm-hmm. because I don't like mm-hmm. them. That's because mm-hmm. I don't think I'm in it just for the building. You know, right. I feel like, you know, the more and more I move through this thing, I feel like I'm in it because it's about bringing, you know, our people together in, 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 in spaces that allow you to be the very best version of yourself mm-hmm. for generations to come. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's mm-hmm. taking the, this idea of space in my mind and beginning to deconstruct it and right. say, it's not the wall that right. creates the space. Mm-hmm. It's the proximity between myself and you and what we do in that space. You know, I think yeah. Professor yeah. Williams, he put a book in front of me. If you look at Karen's space, you look at co-working spaces, I said that's the same thing about when I started to do that type of work. Absolutely. That is that is that 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 space where you you yeah. offer equal access to business to others and you yeah. also create these you know serendipity hap- happenings and you know you create enclave spaces you know you 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 know and it's like you said it's playing with that space and seeing what you could do with it and opening it up to others and how it create group dynamics and how you help people you know just just like say offering access to all to, in a business setting is 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 what it remind me of when when I when I yeah, when I, when I yeah. looked at co- co-working spaces like the Junction 440 yeah. and, and and Space Labs and and, Absolutely. and the the I, this what you made me think of is just how political space is. Yes, and, you know, Dr. Craig Wilkins has been a lot of his work revolves around the political nature of space itself. Mm-hmm. Um, he just did a really thought-provoking piece. I think it had all to do with the Chicago. Art Vietnam, I think it was. It just took place late last year. 
Uh, but just this idea of how political space is, that's really at the, at the core of what interests me about, mm-hmm. about architecture. You know, it's the social, economic, and political impact that, mm-hmm. that it has. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. really, I, I care what it looks like, don't get me wrong, but how it functions and the issues that are sovereign in a political climate. Right. And who really, can access it? Yeah, and that's all yes. that's political, right? That's, yeah. 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 that's a political statement. That right there, I think, it should be at the core of our I, I would say it should be because you know, everyone has their own reason of being in it, but that just gives me an opportunity to argue with it. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and, and we can have a really thought-provoking argument about you know being being political or aesthetic. So. This has been great, right. uh, David. Yes, uh, I have to have a part two. It's all yeah. good. Yeah, it's all good. I appreciate. It. I Appreciate being here. Anytime you need me to elaborate or come back or Means a lot to hear you say that. Thank you, David. Right, right. Um, I have one more question because we do want to provide information and education to students who may be thinking about going into architecture. Uh, just like you just mentioned, um, Noma was your entry, you know, to the profession in a way. You are design director at Dokes Design Architecture. Correct. What does a design director do within an architecture firm? Ask him. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do have her lined up for for an interview, but you know you can uh, you can give a stab <laughs> and, and show design <laughs> director position. <laughs> no, you should open up with that question. Open oh, up with that up question. With that question. Say, hey, what does David do? Right? <laughs> um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing because Kim and I, we, we've been, it's, it's been a super awesome partnership and we've been running probably for the last few years just working to do good work, bring on talent, manage a business, do good design. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen. You all already know, right, what goes into it. So as the director of architecture, really my role is to uh, ensure that we are putting out quality work. That's really ultimately what it comes down to. So if I had to bullet point that, it's uh, managing all consultants on multiple projects. It's staffing. It's a lot of staffing, um, a lot of project management across uh, different projects, a lot of early concepting and uh, client management as well. So those are, I would say, the, the bigger parts of being the director of, um, of architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Damien. Uh, that was uh, that was good. Uh, like I said, uh, summary of it is, uh, you know, in, in in your own business, you always wear many hats, and that's really really kind of what what happens on the day to day, right? But uh, uh, sometime when you started 
you started out today thinking you're going to do me that's not what you end up doing that day but but it's that 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 skill set that you were just talking about allowing you to be flexible and and uh having an eye for what needs to be taken care of at any moment is kind of the key to that director type role model success so yeah. it was that was good Absolutely. Yeah, this, the mini hats, I just, I just keep them all on. I, I, don't, I don't take them all off. take them off. You know how sometimes you wear the hat to the front and sometimes you wear it to the back, you know, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got the 360 hat. You know, right, you know, right. There you, you go. go. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them. If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before you go, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming contemporary and trailblazing architects. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just (laughs) taking it day by day, Yes, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives.